Please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. And we'll start reading from verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used, to stretch, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, again, we invite you to come, to be here with us, to meet us where we are, um, and to speak to us in a personal way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and take a seat. On January 1st, 2022, uh, as most people were ringing in the new year, catching fireworks shows at midnight, spending time with loved ones, popping champagne for Martinelli's, uh, sharing New Year's resolutions, uh, Amanda and I had more important matters to attend to. We had to return to Hogwarts. Uh, in other words, on New Year's Day 2022, HBO released the long-awaited, at least for us, Harry Potter reunion. Uh, if you don't know, we're quiet but very loyal Harry Potter fans in our house. Uh, we both grew up during the time when kids and adults would line up outside Barnes and Nobles through the night and borders, raise your hand if you know what those things are, uh, to buy fresh, newly released first editions of the latest installment of the series. People would like, actually camp out, some would dress up, um, and wait for the latest book, in the same way people these days would wait for the latest iPhone or Jordan drop. What a time. Uh, for me, they were, they were actually the first books that I reread. Uh, like I'd finish the book and then I'd rewind, I'd go back and reread the last couple chapters just to, to relive those climactic moments of the books. And I don't think I've ever done that with any other novel since. Um, and so Harry Potter holds a dear spot in our hearts. Uh, we rewatch all the movies at least once a year. Uh, we can't wait to take Phoebe to Hogwarts, get her own wand. Uh, and so you can imagine all the nostalgic feels that welled up when we found out there was gonna be a reunion. You know, it was like one big, where are they now moment in the wizarding world. However, 
uh, one person was noticeably missing from, from the reunion. I mean, no one super important, only the author of the entire series, J.K. Rowling was not present for the reunion. And at first, there was speculation, I don't know how much you guys follow the news, but there was speculation that Warner Brothers, who produced the movies, wanted to distance themselves from Rowling after a series of comments and tweets that she had put out. Just before 2020, Rowling made comments regarding her views on sex and gender, specifically regarding the UK's new gender recognition laws, um, and her comments were seen as transphobic. And so as a result, controversy erupted. Actors in the series criticized and spoke out against her and then distanced themselves from her. Um, and she actually even received like death, death threats. Got crazy. Um, Rowling has since cleared the air saying, she was actually invited to the reunion, but just decided not to be a part of it. The aftermath and the backlash against her comments also sparked a lot of discussion over things like free speech. Um, and while a lot of people criticized her, there were actually some who defended her. Um, but all in all, it was representative of what is now a cultural norm, especially after 2020. And that is cancel culture. And while part of cancel culture stems from, from the desire for more accountability and awareness, all great things, um, as many things do, especially given the human tendency to, to blame and to deflect and to scapegoat, it spiraled out of hand and tipped over into the realm of censorship, hate, and, and even bullying, adding more gasoline to the current fires of our generation that are disconnectedness, division, mental illness, and loneliness. And unless you totally retreated from the world and became a hermit, which would be understandable given the fact that it was 2020, um, I'm certain that we all witnessed it, at least from a distance. And maybe we even experienced it up close. Like many of us witnessed it on social media, especially in the wake of, of George Floyd and the whole Black Lives Matter movement. And then again, during the presidential elections. Maybe you witnessed it among your own social circles or even in your own families and households. Like people getting called out for believing this or not speaking out against that. Voting for this person or even just associating with people who supported that candidate. And I can tell you that we experienced this tension in our family and that people even left churches amid the social issues. Maybe you yourself were canceled by someone or maybe you yourself cut someone out of your life. There were a lot of things that led to just relationships and friendships and communities just fizzling out over the past three years. So if the norm now is canceling, cutting out, all supposedly in the name of awareness, justice, and truth, whatever that means, given the fact that our secular culture is one of free-floating moral relativity, live your own truth, self-reinforced echo chambers, if cancel culture is the cultural norm now, then by that logic, the concept and the act of something like forgiveness is crazy. It's totally counter-cultural and radical even. Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. And then to live out, you shall forgive your brother 77 times. And these statements made now, if you think about it, totally radical. You know, they, they fly in the face of live your own truth because to, to need forgiveness is to accept a higher authority and truth over us. 
To practice forgiveness is the opposite of canceling. And if you think about it, forgiveness is not justice. You don't get even when you forgive someone. As the late pastor and writer Tim Keller writes, when you forgive, that means you absorb the loss and the debt. You bear it yourself. All forgiveness, then, is costly. Forgiveness costs us. It actually feels kind of uncomfortable and painful to forgive someone. It costs us. And that is something to be avoided, according to our current culture. A culture that seeks justice, which is a good thing, but potentially at the expense of truth and love. And this is what makes Jesus' ministry so radical. Now, we usually like Jesus the radical, Jesus the social activist, Jesus the political rebel, Jesus the defender of the oppressed. Like, we'll get behind that. But what about Jesus the radical forgiver? What about the Jesus who teaches love your enemies? The Jesus who leads by example, forgiving the ones who wanted him dead and the friends who betrayed and deserted him. And then calls us to both seek forgiveness and to forgive others, even when they don't deserve it. That's a hard Jesus to follow. The tension between justice and mercy and grace is real. So today we wrap up our series titled Being With Jesus. Uh, Over the past few weeks, we've been going through the Gospel of John, looking specifically at personal encounters with Jesus, all to ask this question. What does encountering and being with Jesus do to us? To answer that, we look today at the last personal encounter that John describes in his gospel. Jesus and Peter. If you still have your Bibles open, we'll pick it up at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? We don't know exactly what else Jesus said to Peter, but these are the the words that John records. And so I don't know about you, but when I read this, I wonder, man, what was Peter feeling in that moment? And just a few days earlier, Peter, after, after promising to stand with Jesus to the very end, to the death, in fact, disowns Jesus, denies knowing him, not one, but three times. And then Jesus, his friend, is, is arrested, mocked, tortured, and killed. And all the disciples, Peter included, presume that he's definitely dead and he'll definitely stay that way. But then, three days later, Mary Magdalene runs to the disciples to report, I have seen the Lord. The other disciples don't really believe her, but Peter actually runs to scope out the tomb. Jesus then appears to the disciples on multiple occasions, and then now he's cooking them breakfast. So let's put ourselves in Peter's shoes or his sandals. Like you've just denied your best friend. He was then unjustly killed. You are crippled with guilt. You wish you could apologize or say something to explain yourself uh, and make things right again. But he's dead now and you're pretty sure he'll stay that way. Except that now he's definitely back and he's, he's cooking you breakfast. Now put yourself in Jesus's sandals. What would you say to your trusted, most loyal friend who left you when you needed him most? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
notice notice how Jesus doesn't rebuke or reprimand Peter. He doesn't scold him. And keep in mind that Jesus pretty much predicted this would happen. You know, earlier in, in John's gospel, Jesus asks Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And so Jesus knows Peter will deny him, just as he knew all the disciples would desert him in his hour of need. And he knew this all along as he was spending time with them and loving them. And so here he, he, he doesn't come at Peter in anger. There is no, ah, oh, well, if it isn't Peter, the one who said he'd lay down his life for me only to deny me three times. No fish for you. Luke provides this detail. In his gospel, Jesus says this to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Key emphasis on when you have turned again. So not only does Jesus expect Peter to fail, to crumble under fear and to deny him, he prays for Peter, and then he expects Peter to, to get back up. In other words, according to Jesus, failure and, and getting back up are all part of the journey. But Peter will not be defined by his failure. Now, I'm pretty sure that when the name Simon Peter is mentioned, most people will think, oh yeah, deny Jesus three times. And so we might define Peter by his failure, but Jesus doesn't. Someone recently asked me, how does one discern the voice of God from the voice of the devil? Like, how do you tell if it's God saying something or, or, or Satan saying something? Well, here's a place to start. Take a look at this passage, look at Peter, and, and ask this question. What would Satan have wanted Peter to fixate on after his denial? Would, would Satan prefer Peter to fixate on the failure, to, to sulk in that guilt, or to bank on the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus? Would he prefer that we fixate on our failures, our inadequacies, and our shame, or on the grace of Jesus and the power of the cross? Which is truth? Peter might have been stuck in that place of guilt and shame, dwelling on his failure, not to mention just disillusioned by the death of Jesus. But this is not what Jesus thinks. And again, while we might define Peter by his failures, Jesus, the one who was wronged, does not. Jesus is something completely counter to our logic and our culture. Here in this last chapter of John's gospel, Jesus is plain and simple, forgiving Peter. It's easy to get wrapped up in questions like, what does Jesus mean? Why does he ask three times? Is it because there are three denials? Yes, but let's not lose sight of the simple yet profound act taking place here. Jesus is forgiving Peter. He's forgiving his friend. He's forgiving the one who ditched him and denied him. And that's crazy when our cultural fabric is one of canceling. Jesus is foregoing 
personal justice. He's absorbing the debt, choosing to look upon his friend in love rather than in wrath. It's ironic, actually, because Peter is the one who asked Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How often do I have to forgive someone, basically? To which Jesus replies, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Meaning, forgive and forgive. And then, forgive. Would this be normal, acceptable in our culture? No. Would it be just and fair? No. Crazy? Kind of. Forgiveness is not fair. Keller writes again, mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it, to earn it, then it isn't mercy. Meaning, forgiveness by nature has to be undeserved. For forgiveness to be given, personal justice and fairness must be suspended in love. When we forgive, we care more about the relationship than we do about being right. Now, don't think that Jesus is telling us to to not fight for justice or to speak out against injustice. We must do that. We must fight for those who are oppressed. We must speak out on the behalf of the voiceless. And to miss this is to miss a crucial component of following Jesus. But when it concerns ourselves, we follow Jesus down the narrow path of forgiveness. This is radical love. The way forward is through love. Progress and growth in the kingdom of God is always defined by love. Jesus, in his radical love, grants forgiveness. He absorbs our debt. This is the goodness of the gospel. Our sins don't define us. Jesus took those to the cross for us. Our failures don't define us, just as they didn't for Peter. And our sins and our failures don't determine our future, just like they didn't for Peter. So what does encountering and being with Jesus do to us? It frees us. It frees us from our sin. It frees us from our past failures or our past wounds. It frees us from all the guilt and the shame that we've carried with us and, and hidden from others or distracted us, or distracted ourselves from, from processing just as it did for Peter as he sat with Jesus over breakfast. This is the power of the gospel. And this is what new life looks like in the kingdom. Jesus' words to Peter and Luke were, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We pondered what Peter might have felt at the start of this passage. Now I wonder what he felt like at the end of his exchange with Jesus. Jesus doesn't hold any of his wrongs against him. He doesn't hold any of the denial or the desertion against him. And anyone who's ever been forgiven knows the feeling of having that weight just lifted off your chest. Like you can breathe again. And you can breathe knowing that you've been forgiven. You can breathe knowing that your relationship might just be intact. Jesus forgives Peter. Now the question is, how? Like, what happens after the forgiveness? Does Peter go back to doing what he did before? Or is there something new? 
The Greek word for, for repent used throughout the New Testament is, is metanaeo, which means to change one's mind. So let's get back to verse 15. In response to Jesus' question, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. Toward the end of my undergraduate studies in piano, I came to this realization, and maybe you've all been there with whatever program that you've been in. I was like, this is really hard. <laughs> and through, through most of my early college years, I found myself just constantly comparing myself to others. I struggled with not only nerves when performing, but also just feeling like I was never good enough. I questioned my future in music, and to con confirm those insecurities, after hoping and planning to continue into grad school, I didn't actually get in anywhere. I was rejected from the school that I wanted to go to, and I was waitlisted at my backup school. At the same time, there was this, there was one particular professor that I found always like a little intimidating. Uh, I knew his reputation as like a great pianist, uh, but also as just a super intense teacher. Uh, his name was Mr. Shepard. And I knew, I knew students who studied with him were like really good and just really serious. And I knew for sure that I was not good enough to be in his studio. One day, as I sat disheartened by a rejection, uh, discouraged by my future plans following, falling through, uh, I got a phone call. And it was, it was my current piano professor at the time, and I forget exactly what she said, but it was something of the lines of, Brooks, I have some interesting developments to share. And I was like, yes. And she goes on, Mr. Shepard would like to offer you a spot in his studio. And I was like, come again? Uh, usually when you apply an audition for a music program, you specify the professor that you want to work with. And I didn't even choose to apply to his studio because I didn't think I even had a chance, so I figured why bother. And yet, here he was offering me a spot, a chance. Suddenly my rejection was turned around, kind of in an unimaginable way. We eventually arranged a meeting and he sat me down and essentially told me this. Brooks, I know other professors might think this and that about you, but I think there is potential that we haven't tapped into. And with the right tweaks, I think you could really grow. And it's something that might be foreign to many of us, especially as second generation Asian Americans caught in this tension of East meets West parenting is the power of encouragement. And for some of us, we've only known discouragement growing up. Easy example, not a word is said when you bring home A's in your report card, but wrath rain downs when there's one B. And studies show that encouragement is a powerful thing. You know, in scripture, according to Paul, a large part of prophesying is speaking encouragement into an individual or a group. He writes this to the church in Corinth. The one who prophesies speaks, uh, speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. This is what prophecy looks like. 
Encouragement is a far more effective teaching tool than discouragement and, and negative reinforcement, i.e. do this or else. And this is a lesson that, that we're trying to make sure we have down now that we're parents. But when you tear someone down with your words, when you discourage over time, they will live into what you speak to them. Like if you've been told your whole life, you're talentless, you're unspecial, and you're unworthy, you'll never amount to anything you will begin to believe that about yourself and live it out whether you realize it or not. Cue the low self-esteem and the lack of self-confidence. Now on the flip side, when you build someone up with words, when you encourage over time, they will live up to what you speak into them. If you've been told your whole life, you are beautiful inside and out, you're intelligent, you're kind, and you're worthy of love, you will hold that in your heart as the truth about yourself. You will live and act as someone who is assured of their worth. And so my teacher, Mr. Shepherd, spoke encouragement into my life, and I grew into it. But he didn't just speak words. He gave me a real chance. And with that chance, he gave me room to learn and to grow, and also room to stumble and to fail, which I did many times. But through, that, through the chance that I was given, through the space that I was given, and through the guidance he gave me through all of it, I grew. I got better. I achieved goals and set new ones. And, and some of my best memories in my, my music career were, were made while studying under Mr. Shepherd. Like he became more than a teacher. He became a mentor and a friend. Like we just brought Phoebe to visit him the other day. Do you love me, Jesus asked, three times. Three times for three denials. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, replies Peter, three times. Then, feed my lambs three times. So to return to the question, how exactly does Jesus forgive Peter? According to theologian N.T. Wright, what matters is that the question is asked and answered, and even more, that the answer earns each time, not a pat on the back, not a, there, that's all right then, but a command, a fresh challenge, a new commission. Jesus is sharing his own work, his own ministry with Peter. Logic would entail answering a failure with a demotion of some kind. Like this is what happens in the working world. For those of you in the working world, how often is a bad performance review followed by a promotion and a raise? Like that would not make any sense. And yet here, after Peter's, quite possibly his worst blunder, Jesus doesn't demote him. As we said earlier, he doesn't even rebuke Peter, which he has done on other occasions. Instead, he gives Peter a second chance. And more than that, he, in essence, promotes Peter. He charges Peter with carrying on his work. Jesus, the good shepherd, is inviting Peter to shepherd with him. He's basically saying, here, come do my job with me. You can use my office. Here are the keys to the company car. Forgiveness by nature has to be undeserved. 
And by extension, second chances by nature have to be undeserved. Jesus doesn't only forgive Peter, he grants him a second chance. And in doing so, restores his purpose by giving him a greater calling. He breathes new life into Peter and gives him something far better to pursue. And this is no surprise, really. This is what Jesus has been doing from the beginning, calling people into something greater. Towards the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says to Peter and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, come do this with me instead. And then later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' statement to Peter here in John, feed my lambs, is affirmed. He says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So wrapped up in Jesus' statement, feed my lambs, is Peter's redemption. Forgiveness that leads him to greater purpose. This is what encountering and being with Jesus does to us. I want to end with this line from a song. You don't need a different story. Heaven only holds us broken as hell. Living in a tale of glory, it's a miracle becoming yourself. You don't need a different story. John's gospel ends with this. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, a.k.a. John. Um, When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about him? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, Peter's looking at John and saying to Jesus, what about that guy? It's a moment of comparison to which Jesus replies, you don't worry about him. You fix your eyes on me. You follow me. Don't worry about his story. And this leads to some uncomfortable places. Like verses 18 and 19 foreshadow how Peter will actually die for the gospel. A lot of scholars think that he was crucified upside down. But it's easy for us to look at the people around us and think, man, that person has clear skills and gifts. Obviously, Jesus can do something with them. I have nothing. Or we think, well, I can see why this whole Jesus thing would work for her. But I don't think I, I, don't think I fit the mold. And maybe you actually feel like you have nothing to offer to your friends or your family or to Jesus. Maybe you feel like your sins are just too hard to break free of. You've tried and you've only failed and now you're just tired of trying. Or maybe you feel like your sin is just is like too terrible to forgive. Maybe you feel like your wounds make you unworthy of any love that comes from Jesus and, and unworthy of being used by Jesus. If you take a look at Peter's life described in the four Gospels, listing out his victories as well as his failures, I think you'll find that the scales tip more in the directions of failure before they do in the direction of victory. And I think this is why Peter is so relatable. 
I think this is a big reason why Jesus builds his church upon Peter. And throughout history, from the beginning, the church needed all of Peter's story. Back then, as it does now. The imperfections and the failures, as much as the moments of victory and triumph. Because the church is imperfect and must work through failure. The church is a redemption story that we're all a part of. We need all of Peter's story. The imperfections and failures as much as the victories. Because this is what our journeys look like. Working through and offering our imperfections and our failures to Jesus who is our redeemer. Our lives are stories of redemption. And if we were missing those key elements, if Peter's story was any different, if for some reason all of his failures were somehow whitewashed and erased from the pages of Scripture, I don't think we would ultimately receive any encouragement from it because we wouldn't be getting reality. Peter's story is reality. And I think it's a reality that we're living through. Ultimately, Peter's story, the imperfections and failures, as well as the victories, remind us of this. Our imperfections, our shortcomings, our wounds, our failures, don't define us. They're merely materials for Jesus to work with. And on the flip side, our victories don't define us either. The kingdom of God is not a merit-based kingdom. It's not a system of earning. The only thing that defines us, then, is the grace of Jesus Christ. That is the truth that we don't have to earn. That's the truth that we can just rest in. You don't need a different story. You don't need to alter anything from your past. Just as Peter didn't need a different story. Jesus looks at our tendency to compare and he says, you don't need that person's story. His story is for me to write and for him to live out. I'm writing a different one for you. Live in that one. So what's your story? What's the unique beauty in your life as well as the unique brokenness in your life that Jesus wants to touch? Perhaps you've been living most of your life in a sea of discouragement. All the while, the Spirit wants to speak a prophetic word of encouragement into your life. This week's application and practice is is simply this. Ask yourself, what sin, failure, wound, or brokenness do you feel is just out of reach, beyond the power of Jesus? And then reflect on this. What if, what if the very things you thought discounted you from the love and grace of Jesus were actually integral, core parts of your story of forgiveness, redemption, and renewed purpose? So to process that together, we're going to end things a little differently. Normally, we would enter into a moment of silent reflection Um, But today I want to offer just a chance to respond in a different way. I want to offer this time and this space for anyone who wants to start by receiving prayer. And so first, 
Let us stand together. Let us close our eyes and just take a moment to breathe and to be still. This is a time to respond personally. Do you, right now where you're at, do you feel like there is a sin pattern, a particular failure or series of failures, wounds or brokenness that you feel is just impossible to change or to heal? Is there something in your life that you feel is beyond the reach and beyond the healing power of Jesus? Is there something that you just find yourself constantly distracting yourself from? If this is you, then, as a personal act of response, wherever you're standing right now, I invite you to raise your hand because we want to pray specifically for you. Everyone's eyes are closed. There's no need to feel self-conscious. This is just a chance for you to respond personally to what Jesus might be inviting you into. Is there something in your life you feel is just impossible to heal beyond the reach of Jesus? If that's what you're feeling, then as a personal act of response, where you're standing, raise a hand. Because we want to pray specifically for you. I know a lot of times it's, it's just really daunting and intimidating to think of of the practical steps to take for change, the habits you might have to alter, the things you might have to confront. But today we're just gonna take a manageable step. We're just gonna ask for prayer. We're just gonna receive. The next thing I wanna pose is this. Wherever you're at, do you want to welcome and invite Jesus to enter into that dark space? To begin to turn that specific sin pattern, that specific failure, that specific wound into a new story of redemption. Into a new story of healing and transformation. Do you want him to begin to turn what's painful and raw into something new and beautiful? And if that answer just tugging in your heart is a yes, then again, as a personal act of response, I invite you to raise your hand so that you can receive prayer and encouragement. Let us pray. Jesus, you come for sinners. You come for those who are sick. And Lord, we know that in this room, you see our hearts. 
you see our past, our present, and our future. You know the complete story, the beginning and the end. And you see us where we're standing right now. And so, Lord, we just ask for your mercy. We ask for your patience. We ask that your gentleness and your kindness would, would beckon us out of, out of hiding. Lord, there are people here who want to say yes to what you want to do in their lives. There are people here taking an intentional step forward to invite you in to impossible situations, to dire situations, to old recurring wounds that haven't fully healed over. people here who intentionally want to offer you specific sin and sin patterns. And so Jesus, we ask that you would step into those places as, as a powerful Lord and a powerful Savior. We ask that you would begin to do a good and new work in these spaces, in these lives just as you did for Peter. Lord, we pray specifically for these people. We ask that that you would restore a sense of self-worth, that you would restore a sense of warmth, that you restore an experience of your presence and your nearness, and that you would shepherd them into to a brighter chapter, Lord. We pray for a fresh experience of your grace this morning. We pray for forgiveness. And we pray for deep personal renewal. And we ask all of this in your name.